We always see through stories. We don't see through numbers. We like to pretend in modern society that we're kind of rational creatures and we can have an objective view of reality. We can't, really. That's a bit of a fiction, I think. It's one of the modern myths. Paul Kings North is an English writer and former environmental activist. He used to do road blockades and go and protest at the WTO summits. But today, he calls himself a recovering environmentalist. He doesn't really believe that we can do anything to stop the march of the markets and of technology, and that humans are finding themselves in an age of civilizational collapse. It sounds kind of depressing, but I swear if you go and read his work, there is a lot of beauty to be found there. He seeks wisdom and old stories, and especially religious ones. One of the reasons he's so interesting to me is that a couple of years ago, he converted to Orthodox Christianity after a long time of being an atheist and then a Buddhist. I value his work a lot because he holds the tension when it comes to exploring complicated problems and difficult societal questions. And he's taken on unpopular positions like not taking the COVID vaccine, for example, but then defends them with grace and intellect. Those qualities come through in this conversation. And I'm sure that even if you violently disagree with him, you'll still get a lot from this. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Paul Kings North. Paul Kings North, you're a writer. You've got a Substack publication called Abbey of Misrule, and you've published about 10 books. There are essays, poetry, novels, and I think you're probably best known for a book called uh, Real England, which is about the destructive effects of market forces on traditional England and traditional life in England. And my first question for you is a pretty dumb one. It's, why are you so prolific? Why do you write and publish so much? Yeah, that, no, that's a good question because it's impossible to answer, really. I mean, the bigger question is what drives a writer, I suppose. Um, and I'm really not sure. I suppose it's just partly having probably strong opinions about everything, which is not a healthy way to live, really. But <laughs> I've always been like that. I, I, I feel very engaged with the world. I've always loved reading from an early age. And to me, being able to express myself through words on the page somehow is the, is the supreme way of communicating. I'm, I'm much better at that than I am at communicating in person. Probably that's true of a lot of writers. You know, we sit in our bedrooms and we're much more coherent and cohesive on the page than we are if we're standing talking to somebody. And it's after a while, I think writing gets just quite addictive. The, the desire to create the perfect sentence, I think, is something that drives a lot of writers because we never quite get there. Um, and for me, I've, you know, as you said at the beginning, I've I've written poetry, I've written novels, I've written essays or, or blogs, all sorts of things. And now now I'm writing essays on Substack. So a lot of different forms. Um, and all of it comes down to this kind of obsessive need to try and paint the world in words. And I don't really know why that is or whether it's healthy, but I've always had it. Is it about the obsession of the sentence for you, as you mentioned there, or is it about telling something broader some trying to find trying to get at truth or trying to get at some big persuasive narrative yeah it's a bit of both for me i think that there's a literary critic called james wood and he wrote a very good book called um i think it was called how fiction works and in that book he suggested there are two kinds of writers there are writers who um who can tell almost any kind of story they, they can write about any number of different things um and then there are other writers i remember he used dh lawrence as a great example of this who are just who have one story that they obsessively tell and can't stop telling. And that's, I'm one of them. Um, I'd kind of like to be one of the first ones somehow, but I'm one of the second ones. And it, it is it is a more obsessive way of writing. And I've always had it. And I've always wanted to tell the same story or ask the same question, which is the story about why the modern world seems so wrong to me. That's really what I'm getting at in all of my writing. If I knew the answer, I wouldn't have to keep writing possibly. And to what extent is that you trying to grab people by the collar and say, look, can you see what I see? versus trying to figure out what you think and trying to figure out what the actual problem is. Yeah, and I think, again, it's both. And that's a kind of a, some, something of an awkward combination sometimes. When I was younger, I was much more of an activist writer. You mentioned my book, Real England, mm. which was my second book, or my second nonfiction book anyway, and I wrote that ooh, 15 years or so ago now. And that was quite an activist book, and so was my first book. They were both about globalization and uh, technology and capitalism and how they were impacting traditional communities and just sort of destroying local culture and character. And those were very much books where I wanted to kind of buttonhole people and say, look, 
for God's sake, can't you see what's happening? Something must be done. I still have that tendency to a degree, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an activist writer anymore, partly because I don't think it's possible to change things at the fundamental level. Actually, I don't think you can reverse the trends that are happening. So I'm more interested now in, in, as you say, working out what's going on. What, what are we actually living through? It seems to me like we're living through a very revolutionary time in terms of social change, cultural change, technological change, environmental collapse, all sorts of, all sorts of limits being hit. And I don't think any of us can really quite get our head around it. Um, it's very fast and it's almost unprecedented, maybe. And that's, I want to know why it's happening. I, I think there are things that can be done, but on the on the grand scale also, it's just something we have to live through. So I'm less interested now in trying to tell people what to do or tell people what to think. I'm more interested in working out what's going on. Yeah, you seem to have this background in your earlier adult life as an activist and a pretty hardcore activist. You were involved with the uh, road blockades in the UK that were a big thing. Um, but then in later life, you seem to have come to the conclusion that you're no longer an activist. You wrote a book, for example, titled uh, Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist. And I just wonder, like, what's triggered that evolution? And then why do you shy away from titles like activist right now? Well, part of it's probably just the process of getting old. You know, when I was a young, excited, radical man, I thought I could change the world. And I also thought I knew everything because you do when you're in your 20s, or I did. Um, and the process of getting older is the process of realizing you don't know very much at all. And, you know, I have a family now. I'm a father. I'm 50 years old. In that sense, I've just kind of grown out of the youthful enthusiasm of believing I can change the world. But there's also, for me, as a, as an environmentalist, I was somebody who wanted to be part of a movement that was going to protect the natural world from the kind of rapacity of, of the human economy. And I came to see that the environmental movement wasn't really doing that anymore. It was a movement that increasingly was, to my mind, it was more interested in sustaining human industrial progress rather than actually sustaining the natural world. So it seemed to me that the environmental movement couldn't couldn't work at a certain level because people didn't really want it to. There's a contradiction at the heart of it um, that environmentalists talk all the time about wanting to save the earth. And they talk as if the earth were being destroyed and they talk as if it being destroyed by a, a sort of small group of people who are profiting from it but they don't like talking very much about the fact that we're all complicit in it all the time um because we're using all the technologies that do it and we don't really know what to do about that uh, and at the same time we, we have as humans a contradictory desire we want to protect the natural world we don't want to destroy it but we want all the stuff that we enjoy in modernity which is destroying it and we don't know how to make that sustainable or how to keep it going and so it was too contradictory for me and as I say, it's not as if I think I can work that all out myself. But I, I seem to be quite obsessed with trying to find out how we got to the point where we could do this and get ourselves in the, into this mess. Because we are we're in a we're in a dilemma that we can't really get out of, and there isn't an obvious technology or political solution or heroic leader who's going to come and save us. We're going to have to muddle through it. And I'm just, as I say, very interested in how we got to this point. Right. I've seen you're involved. You're one of the co-founders of the Dark Mountain Project, mm. which is an organization that sort of doesn't take a Pollyanna view of humanity's relationship with ecology and frames climate change as a predicament to be uh, kind of endured rather than a problem that can be solved. Doesn't that depress you, though? I mean, it must depress other people I've seen I've seen these I've seen these uh, comments come up in discussion of Dark, Dark Mountain and in, and in your work and isn't this a, a bleak message to to pe for people to contemplate that you you can't do anything that you should just sort of submit? Well, yeah, there's a lot of people who say that. It's a funny thing, you know. Dark Mountain is something I started quite a while ago now, 2009, and it's been a few years since I was running it now. And the aim of it originally was to create a, an artist's movement. It was originally going to be a fairly small sort of collective of artists and writers. That was the, the kind of the vision that I had. The idea was that we would gather writers together who were interested in writing as if we really were going through this epochal shift. Because at the time, this is not so true now, but at the time, although there was plenty of awareness of climate change and things around, there was there was still a kind of sense that we could keep writing novels as if it was the 1950s or something, and 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 we didn't think we could. So. So that was the point of that, um, really. And, and it sort of began with this notion of radical acceptance. And yeah, absolutely. There were lots of people then and probably still are who say, oh, this is just depressing. This is, you know, this is unnecessary. This is negative. Funnily, it didn't seem like that to me. And one of the reasons Dark Mountain went on for so long is that a lot of people got in contact with us and said, this is such a huge, huge relief. It's a huge help. 
because it's surprising how many people are out there who feel that they have to pretend that everything is going to be all right if they just say the right thing or do the right thing or recycle their bottles or go to the right campaign activist group or whatever. And they don't really feel that. People can see that the simple answers don't really work. And and they found it very useful to have a place they could come to. And Dark Mountain turned into this to some degree where they could actually just admit this and say, we, we, you know, we're just in this place now. This is where the world is. We don't really know what to do. That's not to say there's nothing to be done or that people can't contribute usefully to things. It's just to say that the big picture is not really within our control at this point. And that's, it's surprising how many people found that very useful, found it actually the opposite of depressing. And one of the results from the Dark Mountain Project is that you ended up getting this big profile in your Times magazine in 2014, <laughs> uh, which described one of the uh, uncivilization sort of festivals, get-togethers in, in the wild of uh, some Dark Mountain people. And I read that profile, I was like, well, this guy's interesting. And then you popped up in Substack, and I was like, wow, awesome. That must have had some change on your life, or at least as you're seeing internationally, for example, and, and outside of the UK. What, what was it like? Yeah, I think I think that probably did. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't really expecting that. <laughs> that that guy just said I'd like to come and write about your festival, and then it turned out to be far more about me than it did about Dark Mountain, which is not quite what I had in mind. I mean, it was fine. It was it was you know it had a certain angle to it. They always do these things. The the, the, the guy who wrote that, Daniel Smith, who, who seemed like a very nice chap, had a particular sort of question he was asking about how to deal with the kind of pessimism of the whole thing, and so that's what he wanted to write about. So. It, it it was skewed a bit much towards that to my mic to my liking I suppose but it was fine I didn't I didn't dislike it and you're right it did get me a lot of a sort of strange attention from some quarters I suppose but I mean at the time it was you know it was quite a positive thing to happen to Dark Mountain I think it made it it, it certainly got it noticed in America in a way that it hadn't done elsewhere um, but I think I think generally probably the response was just a kind of amusement. Um, <laughs> probably in 2014 is it's surprisingly how surprising how long ago it seems now it's only nine years but right. everything's changed in terms of the way we talk about these things another thing that's interesting about dark mountain is that you held up storytelling as one of its central aims and celebrating storytelling is or, or promoting storytelling is something that's essential to the human condition can you tell me a little bit more about that why do you think storytelling is so important especially as we go through this current phase of humanity and the planet. Mm, I think that was probably the central claim of Dark Mountain. It was certainly the most interesting one. That was what we really started up for. It wasn't just to spread doomy messages about climate change. It was to say, look, we've got to this point by telling ourselves the wrong stories. We are telling ourselves stories about a particular kind of progress and a relationship with technology and a relationship with the rest of nature that turn out not to be true. Primarily, the story is that, you know, we're, we're, we are as gods and we can get good at it and we can use technology to manage the future and the rest of it. And I don't believe that. Didn't believe that then. And so this, that was the central claim of Dark Mountain, that we're storytelling animals, that every culture across time and space has always had the telling of stories at its heart, religious stories, mythic stories, stories about the culture, stories about the land, stories about our relationship with nature, with each other. They're absolutely central to what we are as a people. And the stories that we tell are the, are the things which create our cultures. And, and they're the things which make us see the world in certain ways. We always see through stories. We don't see through numbers. We like to pretend in modern society that we're kind of rational creatures and we can have an objective view of reality. We can't, really. That's a bit of a fiction, I think. It's one of the modern myths. We always tell stories. And, and objective reason is one of those stories. It's just the one we happen to be telling at the moment. So the stories we tell about nature about our relationship with it they're the things that got us to this point and if that's true then telling a different kind of story can take us in a different direction can create a different kind of culture that's what i believed then and that's what i believe now now that's not a uh it's not a prescription we weren't suggesting that there was a particular type of story writers should be telling in an activist sense or a political sense it was an invitation more than anything to examine the stories we're telling and the assumptions they're built on and think about what new ones might be like. One of the things we said at that time, I think, was that it's time for new stories. And I don't really agree with that now. I think what I what I think now, 10 years later, is that there are a lot of old stories that we can rediscover that will actually help us to navigate through the future. Because in one sense, where we are is unprecedented. In another sense, it's just humans doing what we've always done. You say that your organizations have resisted sort of prescribing the right stories to tell. But I wonder if you have a prescription for yourself or a story that you favor. I've seen, I think you resist that in your writing. You're talking about some of the problems. You're like helping make people aware of the extent to which 
the machine has taken over humanity or or humanity is sort of building the machine to that will escape nature and we should go into that a little bit more it's very interesting but i wonder like do you actually have a positive vision that you're trying to uh, push people towards or like an escape plan for humanity that you're trying to draw our attention to escape plan yeah we we can all go to mars with elon musk that'll (laughs) that'll sort everything out (laughs) there's a lot of escape plans out there disturbingly well you know funnily enough in the last few years only the thing i've become really obsessed with is is religious stories i've i mean i've particularly become obsessed with a christian story because i found myself becoming a christian which was very unexpected and initially resisted i have to say but um what i've come to understand as something of a revelation is that these old religious stories which uh, for most of my life i probably thought were irrelevant or maybe just interesting but certainly probably something which holds us back and certainly doesn't have any answers to where we're going i've come to see that i think they're the stories that shape our lives and i think that every single culture on earth up until very recent times has been religious in the broad sense uh, in the sense of having a sense of uh, a wider spiritual reality and our relationship with it Uh, And most of the world is still like that. But in the modern West, we tend to think it isn't. And we tend to think we're evolving beyond it. But it seems to me that rather, instead of being some sort of old-fashioned, irrelevant bunch of myths that we've outgrown because we have science, religion is actually the way that we navigate our understanding of reality. It's the great story. It's our relationship to God. It's our relationship to the earth. It's our relationship to each other. They're all kind of contained within it, within all religious stories, actually. And I think I've come to see that the abandoning of that kind of those spiritual guardrails, if you like, has opened us up to the position we're in now. Because if you don't believe there's a God or a gods that you turn your attention to, if you don't believe there's something bigger than you, you're going to end up worshipping yourself. You're going to end up worshipping the world or you're going to end up believing that you are gods, which is effectively the point that we've got to. To what extent do you think that atheism has been coupled with the rise of technology? and perhaps even promoted by recent technologies and how we use recent technologies. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's an absolutely symbiotic relationship, I think. I mean, you know, it's, I'm, I'm currently obsessed with the first few chapters of the book of Genesis because it's, it's just very interesting to read them and reread them and think, oh, hang on a minute, this is telling a story about where, that our relationship now with each other and with technology. It's fascinating. I mean, the story there, the kind of mythic understanding of what a human is, is that we're created... And we're put into a garden with everything else that lives. And we're there to be stewards of this garden, to tend it. We're, we're supposed to be gardeners. That's who we are. And we choose not to do that. We choose to do the one thing we're told not to do, which is eat the apple, which will give us the knowledge of good and evil. And that makes us believe that we can become gods. So off we go. And then we're expelled from the garden because you can't be a gardener who thinks he's a god. So out we go and and we become farmers and uh, on comes the backbreaking labor and uh, the advent of death and the first thing we start doing is is building cities we start building uh, we we start building towers we start developing technologies we start trying to make ourselves gods which is what we wanted to be in the first place instead of being at one with the rest of creation we decide to try and defeat it and manage it ourselves and beat god at his own game and that's the story of the book of of the book of Genesis, which is thousands of years old, and it's hardly the only creation myth which tells a similar story. The, the, many old faiths and cultures are full of this story of humans trying to become gods and then falling from the sky as a result. And that's what we're doing. And atheism and technology are absolutely explicitly tied together, I think, because what we do is we say, well, the only thing that's real is what modern science can show to be real. And since it can't show us anything but material reality, that's the only thing that matters. And that's the only thing that's true. And since we're increasingly good at manipulating material reality to our own ends, then we'll do that. And it very quickly becomes a kind of moral imperative because we say, well, look, there's a lot of poverty in the world. There's a lot of misery. There's a lot of uh, environmental destruction. And we have an obligation to do something about that. And we'll use our technology to do it. So we very quickly get into the situation where we create this thing that I've called the machine, which is a very, very old thing. It's not new. We just have a a new manifestation of it at the moment, which is a huge technological network of command and control, effectively, that is is attempting to create a kind of utopian system where everyone will be wealthy and equal and the world will be protected and the climate will not change. But of course, what we're going to do is we're going to create a prison um, and we're going to become, just as we did when we tried to build the Tower of Babel, we're going to attempt to become gods and end up collapsing around ourselves because there's no humility in it. I think it was Chesterton who said that... Um, 
it's not religion that's the opium of the people, it's irreligion that is the opium of the people. Because when we stop worshipping something beyond the world, we will worship the strongest thing in the world instead. And I think the strongest thing in the world today is probably technology. So we put all of our, our hopes into that and we develop this theology of, of something called progress, which is effectively humans becoming gods aided by technology. So I think this, I think that's exactly what is happening and that's what a lot of my essays have been trying to trying to delve into. It's interesting that before you said the first thing we did was build cities, because that wasn't quite the first thing we did. In fact, it was a very late development in the history of humanity. I think I'm, by the way, I think I'm trying to support your point here and make your case for you, with you. <laughs> but we didn't build cities until sort of 10,000 years ago. <clears throat> didn't start building, didn't start like civilization until sort of approximately 10,000 years ago. Humanity has been around for sort of a couple hundred thousand years uh, since the advent, since Homo sapiens got up and started um, living together as nomadic packs and becoming more human-like. So this is a really recent development. You know that we've lived as civilizations. It's like less than it represents less than five percent of the total human existence. And then all the other stuff that's come on since then is even more recent. Like the the internet was yesterday or, or one minute ago, and humans are trying to sort of catch up to this new way of living, including being upright bipedal primates that now live in shelters that have windows and central heating mm. and including hurriedly in some cases trying to replace the stories that gave birth to human consciousness and i wonder to what extent have we given ourselves little other choice than to become gods like if we don't become gods and we don't create ways to use technology to manage the predicament we find ourselves in, what option do we have? Is it just meek submission to being overcome? Mm. Well, that's the kind of the, the Stuart Brand point, isn't it? That, you know, we are as gods, so we might as well get good at it, is his famous quote. Mm. I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, you're right. I mean, in, in historical terms, we don't build cities until quite late. I think it's actually the last 1% of human history that we end up being civilized in terms of uh, ag agricultural agricultural civilizations. Mm. I tend, I tend to think that, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden is some form of representation of, of our hunter-gatherer ancestry, actually, in some ways, because that's what we were for 99% of time. And we've only been civilized for, as you said, a drop in the human ocean. And in the last, even just in the last 200 years, the last 50 years, it's accelerated so fast into this technological system that we're all stuck in now that... I think you put it well. We don't. We haven't developed stories to allow us to cope with this, um, and I'm not sure that we that we can in a way because, you know, we're we're part of the natural world, and increasingly most of us are cut off from it all the time. and And I think that creates all kind of all kinds of psychological madness and mental health problems, and goodness knows what else, and physical health problems as well, which we can see manifesting everywhere. And we don't really know what to do about it. And you are right also to say that once you get to that point, it's there is no garden to go back to at least not not on this physical plane. So you are stuck here saying, okay, how do we get through this? And then the question becomes, do you kind of tighten this ratchet? Do you keep building this machine? Do you take us further and further into it in the hope that we can get through the bottleneck and end up with this with the, with this sort of some I don't know, some sort of Star Trek culture? Or do you do you seek an escape hatch? Uh, and that's not neither of those answers is going to be universal. Probably both of those things will be going on at once. I mean, I can imagine the future of, of Elon Musk trying to go to Mars and parts of society collapsing and plenty of people escaping and living like the Amish and all sorts of things all going on at the same time, depending on what you think you can cope with. I mean, some people love this. I mean, the, the, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are very much up for the high tech machine future. And then other people like myself are just kind of uh, it's just horrible to contemplate and that's that stuff is happening at the level of the soul so it's not something you can rationally argue people into and out of i think how are you personally responding to it you've got a kid um, i'm sorry is a son son or a daughter you have i have both actually i have a, a daughter and a son daughter's a few years older daughter and a son you've got a daughter and a son uh you're you're married you live in the irish countryside uh, as far as i can tell I think you have a composting toilet. Was it was it was a detail I read about your life? I do. I'm very. I'm, I think I'm probably most famous for having a composting toilet. Everyone wants to about that. Everyone's no. very excited about the I, toilet. I, I envy it. I envy it. It's ridiculous. Just as a side note, that we put our bodily refuse into these large pools of perfectly clean water and then flush it away and then try and it's fix quite, the water again. Yeah. 
yeah, how are you personally dealing with it? Given this set of things, given this set of beliefs, given this set of understandings, and given that you're raising a family, what choices are you making about your own life and how do you seek happiness or contentment? Well, I think, you know, my my personal choice, my my selfish choice, if you like, probably with my wife as well, we just, we, we had to get away from it. My wife used to be a, a doctor in the National Health Service in Britain, actually, and that was pretty overwhelming for her uh she spent a long time in that and um we we talked for a long time about wanting to to just go and get a bit of land if we could afford it uh, and, and a little house and we ended up running away to the west of ireland which is the only place we could afford and yeah just trying to escape the rat race in something of a cliched way probably we have a little house with a few acres of land we've homeschooled our children we have the famous compost toilet we grow some food we grow our own firewood we have a few chickens you know, and I, I somehow managed to make a living through writing, which is, which Substack has helped me with. So thank you very much. <laughs> My <laughs> so, pleasure. <laughs> so that's that's our personal choice, and it's it's what we've been able to do. We're lucky to be able to do it. Sometimes it's a bit touch and go, but it's um, but it's also you know we're not we're not off the grid. I mean, here I am on a computer talking to you, so mm-hmm. we still rely on electricity, and I still have a car, and uh, you know we have an internet connection and the rest of it. So although we're probably more certainly a lot more independent than we used to be. We're still kind of connected to everything. But for me, it's um, it was just becoming increasingly hard to live in an urban environment, especially a big, big British one. It, it, I couldn't imagine going back to it now, to be honest. I've, I've become a bit of a bumpkin out here, mm-hmm. like a hobbit. <laughs> I sort of sit here and write my essays. And occasionally I... I venture into a city and then come home after a few days. I'm asking you to be a, an oracle. It's not a fair question, but do you think that? <laughs> do you not? Do you think there's going to be a growing appetite for that kind of lifestyle? I only, I kind of ask because I find myself with this urge. I'm from a small town in the South Island of New Zealand, and I've just been there over the Christmas period, and I find myself so valuing the things that that small place offers. Seeing the stars very clearly at night walking through a river that no one else is in at the time and it's Mm. the opposite of my online existence which is this very like caffeinated twitching thumb uh endless scroll kind of anxiety and i i wonder if like future generations can get to this point where they're just like no release me from this give me nature give me the wild give me religion I think there's a huge number of people who'd already like to be released from it. I mean, it's just a question of being able to. And it, I mean, I know so many people in Britain who would love to be able to have a little house on an acre of land if they could afford it, but it's it's almost impossible unless you're wealthy. And it's, as you say, the lifestyle that we're sold is very progressive and desirable. You know, it has its upsides, but it, it's very stimulating, but it's it's overstimulating as well. And what it does fundamentally is it cuts us off from the real stuff of life. As you say, community, connection with nature, um, roots in a place, seeing the stars at night, tasting the clean air, putting your feet in the river. That stuff is is infinitely more valuable than watching a hundred videos on YouTube, however good they are. It just is because it's it it it's what we are. It's where we come from, and it's actually what we want at a fundamental level. And it's it's increasingly unavailable. But I think I can already see it happening to a situation where a lot of younger people are just going to say, "Look, screw this. I, I'm I'm going to go." And we're going to do something else. And there's a good chance that people will start to do that in communities, which actually I think is one of the answers to the situation that we're in, that people are going to get together, people with shared values, maybe shared religious values, shared cultural values, and they're going to say, look, let's buy some land, let's go somewhere, let's go and do something else, let's make it work. People have done that at many points in history in the past, and I could see a lot of people doing it again if they they can as well. I wrote an essay on, uh, on Substack a couple of years ago about Oswald Spengler and his book, The Decline of the West, which is a great great prophetic book about the collapse that was going to happen in the 21st century about now and and he's pretty spot on about most of what he says but one of the things he says is there will be what he calls a second religiousness that will follow this kind of cultural collapse of the west he says we've hollowed ourselves out spiritually and culturally we're nothing but materialists and that's not going to work that's going to come down and when it comes down there's going to be a great return to religion in some form because people are going to just realize that this is this is the stuff of life. And I, th- I think that's quite convincing to me. I think that could well happen. I wonder if this relates to another thing you've said, which is that this is one of your Substack posts recently. You wrote that we have a culture war because we no longer have a culture. You say, and in particular, you're talking about the West here. The West is fragmenting and it cannot be put back together again. Can you explain what you mean there a little bit more? One of the books I wrote about in, um, in my essays was Alistair McIntyre's famous book, um, After Virtue. And he uses a an example in there of what happened when they uh, 
taboos were removed from i think it was one of the polynesian islands it took about took a generation before the the culture just collapsed because what they did was they removed all the old what they considered to be the old-fashioned taboos and ethics that didn't seem to have any meaning anymore but they turned out to be the only thing that held them together and so when i look around the west today it looks pretty clear that there's nothing much to hold us together we don't have any shared values we don't have a shared religion we don't have a shared sense of who we are and so we're either going to fall apart into something completely different or we're going to have to find a new set or or somehow revert to the old now i don't know which one of those it will be but as i said i think the culture war to some degree is exactly a manifestation of having no culture because you've got a bunch of people broadly on the left who want to effectively destroy the entirety of western culture and heritage and then you've got a bunch of people broadly on the right who are sort of defending the past at all costs even if it comes down to defending empire and a christianity that they don't really believe in uh, and none of them really know what they want and and everybody's screaming at each other because we don't it's a kind of it's an internet war to some degree anyway and it's it's a bunch and i'm very struck by the fact that whenever i've been anywhere in the world where people do have a really solid rooted culture they don't have to talk about their culture they're not having a culture war because they just know who they are and where they are a culture war is something you do when you don't really have a culture and you're fighting over what the meaning of, of of things is so that seems to be where we are people are just very lost i think and there are some attempts it looks like to replace what might have been lost for some people with some new version of what could have held them up in the past and you've experienced it you've been at the receiving end of this because some of the things that you're saying i've been hearing like what could be trigger words for some people who have a sort of new religious belief in a certain set of ideals and you talk about the west you talk about protecting values and traditions and religion and stories and for a lot of people sorry, not a lot of people. There is a small group of people who are very active on social media at the moment who have formed a new tribe who will hear all that stuff and they'll say, that's fascism. Mm. That's, you're trying to, you're, you're a white supremacist trying to protect these old um, colonial ideals. And the reason I, I've seen the set about you is because you wrote a film review a few years ago. And I think mm. in the future, in the future, hopefully we'll get to a point where we'll, we'll look back at this and think it's hilarious, but it must've been unpleasant at the time. But where you wrote a film review that this film was a small, small sort of art film that made you feel patriotic because it was mm. uh, depicting a part of England that has been lost, but that was meaningful. And uh, this review you wrote uh, appeared in a relatively small journal that was online, but then you got attacked. You got attacked by um, ideological opponents, um, and it, most of it happened on Twitter. And it or even drew in, I think, some friends of yours who had felt they had to denounce you because what you wrote was being interpreted as friendly to fascism or friendly to this idea that white colonial rule is good. What's your response to all that? And what was it like to, to go through that? The whole thing was very weird. I mean, if I look at that piece again, I still can't understand what I actually wrote that was supposedly so terrible. And the interesting thing about it was that all I was doing was writing the kind of thing I'd been writing for the previous 15 years. But what had happened is that the culture had changed. So there's a few things that's going on, I think. So I was writing a piece about this. It was, a, it was just a film I was asked to review. And it's just a, it's a collage of old, old sort of... Uh, uh, old films from the English countryside and the British countryside that makes up quite a nice... Um, strange mystical mishmash of a film about a, a kind of a lost england so i wrote this piece about how nostalgic this made me feel even though i'd never seen it i'd never seen the place that was lost and how it made me feel patriotic and i thought patriotism was a good thing which i still do in the sense of being connected to a place and heritage uh, and yeah somehow this gets worked up into a story about how I'm, I'm i'm what i'm really saying is and then everybody just inserted their own narrative about racism colonialism and fascism and the rest of it now firstly it's worth saying that being a white supremacist was news to my Indian wife, who had never found out about this for the last 15 years. But it's uh, partly what's going on is there's there's a, an American narrative which has come roaring into Britain about race and white supremacy and colonialism and the rest of it. And it has nothing really to do with England, has nothing to do with, with Britain, which has its own history and its own narrative and, you know, plenty of stuff to argue about around empire and race and things like that. But it's not got anything to do with this sort of very americanized race narrative about whites and 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 black people and colonialism and settlers and things like that it's a very particular thing but because the intellectual class is very globalized they seem to have taken on board this notion that the world is divided into sort of good progressives and bad fascists and you have to be one or the other and i've never been either of those things 
I certainly wouldn't have anything to do with the far right, but I never have done and I've never written anything that anyone could actually interpret as that if they were being honest. So to be honest, the whole thing was very, very, it knocked me off my feet at the time because I had no idea that it was coming because it just didn't make any sense to me. Nothing that I'd written was anything to do with that. It was a nostalgic little film review that I wrote for a little nature writing website. It's not some piece of political agitprop, but I think there's a few people there who have personal agendas. Some of them have been after me for a while. And it's absolutely true that there's a certain type of sort of left progressive nature writing coming along in Britain that I don't fit into, not because I'm on the right or whatever, just because I don't, I don't write like that. I don't agree with these people. I don't want to politicize my connection with the landscape in the way that they do. And that's, that's one of the, the other things that's happened is that the culture war has politicized everything. And that so many things in Britain now, if you're a writer, have to be kind of run past the progressive gatekeepers. Uh, and they will, they just, the interpretations of the words are so bizarre. They'll take a sentence entirely out of p- p- proportion, uh, entirely out of context, turn it into something that you didn't say at all. Uh, and yeah, suddenly, suddenly you find you're being called a white supremacist. I, I don't even know what that means. It's certainly got nothing to do with anything I'd ever written. So it was very disturbing. So when I got mobbed and when I saw people who, who joining in and attacking me, who knew damn well that what they were saying wasn't true. They knew exactly. These people knew me. Some of them had been to my house. They knew damn well I wasn't a racist or a fascist or any of these other things, but they joined in anyway. And I, so I thought to myself, well, why did they do that? Why are they stabbing me in the back when they know me, joining in with a narrative that they know isn't true? And it, it made me ask a lot of questions about mob behavior and about ideology and about what was actually going on, why people were saying these things. Do you think you'll forgive those people, the people who went after you, the friends? Yeah, I think I, I already have done. I'm a Christian. I have to do these things. It's, uh, it's one of the useful, one of the useful, um, the, one of the useful parts of being a Christian. You have to try and make yourself forgive them. I think it's, you know, it is difficult. Uh, I don't mind being attacked by strangers. I, I'm quite happy with people criticizing my work. I'm a writer. They've got every right to say everything they want to say. If they want to attack me, they can. But when you have somebody you know going for you, especially when they know it isn't true, it's, um, yeah, it's upsetting. But it also what it also does is it just completely destroys your respect for that person. Because if you have uh, somebody you consider to be a friend joining in with the mob who are saying things that they know very well are not true about you just to protect their careers, which is effectively what's going on, then it's very upsetting. But more broadly, what it also does is it shows how the culture war has advanced, how this this kind of progressive phalanx has, has, has advanced, because most people don't necessarily agree with some of the more radical claims that are being made, but they sort of go along with it because they're scared. And that's fundamentally what we've seen. And I've tried, I'm trying now not to be scared. And one of the reasons I'm writing on Substack is that it's a, it's a place where I can actually, I have the freedom to say what I want. I have the space to expand on it and try to be careful with it. So I can't be misinterpreted, but also so that I can say what I believe, which is increasingly hard to do because we're in a situation where debate is being closed down and conversation is being closed down and it's very disturbing. And there's a lot of people out there on all sides of the, the, the fence who are who have a lot of interest in closing that debate down, because there's a lot of people who want who want a culture war, and it's not it's not a good thing. How close were you to going in the other direction, which was to be cowed by the attacks, to basically mute your voice? Yeah, it's a good question because the first thing that happened to me was that I got this, as as you said, I got this mob coming after me, and I was just I was because I wasn't expecting it. It was just I didn't really know what to do about it. What actually happened was that because I had written this piece partly for this little website, but also it was supposed to be included in the in the the DVD of the film, I think. And so people started some of the mob having come after me. What they then do is they go after any of your associates. So they started going after the guy who'd made the film and saying, oh, well, he must have agreed with this. He must be a fascist as well. And I didn't even know him and he didn't know me. So I thought, well, this is really unfair. So what I did was I took the piece down off the website. I didn't apologize for it or anything because I hadn't written anything wrong, but I took it down because I just wanted the thing to go away. And in retrospect, I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, in, in retrospect, I wish I, I hadn't sort of buckled because, as I say, I don't think I did anything wrong. You can dislike the piece if you want, but it's um, it's actually very innocuous if you ask me. Not that anyone did ask me. It's <laughs> just part of the problem. It's but not, no, it's not so the point. <laughs> no, exactly. No, the point is what they can call you, not what you actually are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I took the piece down and I regretted doing that. And and I did for a while sort of want to just be quiet and, and just not. And I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't write about this anymore. I, it wasn't that I was going to join in. I actually find what these mobs do really morally disgusting. And I think if you're prepared to mob people you know for the sake of your career, then you ought to be taking a good look at yourself. 
And there's far too many people doing that. And ironically, um, a lot of them end up getting mobbed by their friends as well a few months later. So it doesn't usually pay. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So I, I did. I did for a while think, uh, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't write. Maybe I can't write. I, I don't even know what I can say now. Maybe they're all going to call me a Nazi forever. But then in the end, I thought, well, I'm a writer. I either have to say what I believe in, and I try and say it carefully and so that I can't be misrepresented, but I'm either going to do that or I have to just give up because the worst thing to do, and there are some writers who do this, is effectively to allow yourself to be censored and rewritten and controlled in order to have a career. And and the way that works is not usually that people are going to come and tell you what to say. It's just that you self-censor. I know a lot of writers who do this all the time. They self-censor. They say, am I allowed to say that? Can I write this? Can I put this character in this book? Am I allowed to write about this time period? Can I? I'm a, write, I'm a white writer. Can I write a black character? All of this stuff. And everybody's doing this all the time. And, you know, they, they shouldn't really have to do it. Um, and it, it's fine to be careful and intelligent about what you write and sensitive. That's a good thing to do. But that's not the same as censoring yourself because you're scared of being mobbed or sacked or lied about or called a Nazi. And there's a lot of that going on. And it's a disturbing situation. But I just decided I just have to say what I think is true. I just have to do that. And I have to try and do it as well as I can. Otherwise, why bother? What do you think of some of the consequences of if everyone decided to do the opposite to what you're doing? If everyone succumbed, if everyone agreed that they should self-censor and, and self-censor and they've started doing that to themselves. What might be consequences for society? If you're 20 and you're starting off, then you're not going to rock the boat. You don't have the confidence to do that. You don't have, you can't make a living. You have to sort of go along with it. And that's what people are doing. And that's, that's the thing that's most worrying about it. I think is that it's people know what they're supposed to say. And the, the consequence of that is actually just that writing becomes very boring. You know, the novels are all the same and the TV's all the same and everyone's sort of operating within a very safe space. What you can get, the two extremes are, on the one hand, people are just self-censoring and being bland and going along with what they think they're supposed to say. And on the other hand, you get a kind of culture warrior who wants to fight back and then they spend all of their time just ranting about the woke people and how awful they are. And they're just as bad. And then, you you know, you're either a woke person or an anti-woke person, and you don't really want to listen to either of them. You know? And then what you should be is somewhere in the middle trying to hold the tension and being able to say, look, I'm just going to try and negotiate between these two extremes and actually say what I want to say. It's very difficult. It's a difficult thing to do, but it probably always has been, you know, and there probably hasn't ever been a time when, to some degree, writers haven't been censored or controlled by some authority or other. But I think you have to try and maintain your integrity. And I just decided to try and do that. Well. Because you are great at it, holding the tension, that's why I wanted you to, to come and talk to me on this show. And I think one of the examples of where you demonstrated that, and it's a very difficult issue, and it's another one that will get you cancelled in certain circles, <laughs> is, when, <laughs> is when you decided to come out and say, I'm not going to get the vaccine. I'm not going to get the COVID shot. And you said in this piece that you didn't disrespect the people who do that, and that's their choice, and that's wonderful, and that's um, fine. And you didn't say it's because of a tribal affiliation, because, um, you know, Fauci is evil or uh, the, the COVID industrial complex is out to control our minds. But you said it was because, maybe I'm just going to spoil it. <laughs> you can put the color on this, but my interpretation was it's not to, it's to not submit to the machine. So can you explain, can you explain to me that position and explain to me what you, what you were meaning? COVID was such a good example of this culture war we've just been talking about and how, you know, a a new disease got completely sucked into the existing vectors of this thing. And so suddenly, whether or not you had a vaccine or believed in lockdowns or wanted to wear masks was a highly political issue, I think, especially in America, but also in Britain and a number of other places, too. And instantly that you expressed an opinion either way, you you were sort of you were in a camp. And so it was impossible to have a debate. It was impossible to have a conversation. It was terrifying, actually. Um, you know, the, the very point where we ought to have been having a discussion about whether we should be locking people down for months or using vaccine passports to control people's movements or all these other things, which I found extremely sinister, given my attitudes to the machine. We were being censored. I mean, people were people with, with dissenting views were being removed from, from the Internet all over the place. Substack, to its credit, was one of the few places where that wasn't happening. And it just immediately the culture war started acting on on COVID. Now, for me, uh, I'm my wife is a doctor, as I've said, and so 
you know, we have a lot of medical conversations and I, I'm generally cautious. So the reason I decided not to take the vaccine and my family didn't was not political. It was practical. I, I thought this is a new thing. This is a new vaccine. It's a new illness. This is plainly being rolled out without proper testing. I'm not going to put this into my body yet. I want to wait to see what it does. Maybe in a couple of years I will. But it wasn't an ideological position. But then I was also concerned later on as things got more and more controlled by what was going on by the i mean where i where i live in ireland there was no debate there was no conversation uh, there was no discussion around lockdowns they rolled out a vaccine passport system for 6 months we couldn't virtually go anywhere in society no conversation about that either no dissent in parliament no dissent in the media everyone who did dissent was called either a fascist or a conspiracy theorist it was terrifying actually it was really disturbing and it wasn't the vaccine that was disturbing it was the system that was rolled out around it and the way that all of a sudden, whether or not you'd had that vaccine and whether or not you completely agreed with what the state was doing, had become a kind of a marker of whether you were a good person. And so there was no conversation to be had. And this was represented as science, whereas it was the opposite of science, because science is, you know, having a conversation about what actually might be true and testing things to see if they work and, and listening to dissenting voices. And that's what the scientific method is supposed to be. Um, but it was very disturbing for me. So, uh, yeah, we, we I started off in the position of just simply saying, I'm not going to take this vaccine because I'm cautious about new medicines and I don't like the way it looks. And I ended up because of, again, because of what I thought was quite an innocuous decision, being represented as an enemy of society, as so many of us were, and seeing that as a manifestation of this this machine being rolled out. Because all of a sudden, almost everybody around me was quite happy to go along with this. And the more I looked at the evidence, I thought, well, look, say what you like about these vaccines but they don't prevent transmission of the virus and even the people who made them say that so what's the justification for a vaccine passport system and nobody could answer that question or wanted to because everybody had gone a bit mad about this about this virus do you think there's any way back from this kind of moments and this cultural war where something as simple although it's not simple something as simple as deciding to take the covid vaccine or not determines who is bad and who is good <clears throat> how do we and the, the we're still at a point where the heat on that is intense and elections will be decided by it you know who's allowed in polite society um, and who's not will be decided by it is there any way out of that yeah it's a good question i mean the optimistic scenario i suppose is that people have learned from that and they've said you know we rolled out a load of stuff around covid that maybe was rolled out too fast or maybe didn't work very well. I mean, there's quite a lot of consensus now on the lockdowns having not actually been very effective. The economic damage is pretty clear. There's a lot of problems around mental health in a lot of people who were locked down. Children's learning outcomes are being measured, and we can see that the having to wear masks and being locked down and avoiding people was very damaging for them. We have debates about how, how effective or dangerous the vaccines were. Everything does look less simple now than it did to a lot of people a year ago. And there's a lot of debates, even amongst people who were very gung-ho at the time, about whether this was quite the right thing to do in the way that it was done. So the best case scenario is that we say, OK, we kind of panicked there. and we, we, we rushed into this thing that actually didn't have much justification for it, at least to that degree. And we'll try not to do it again. We'll learn from that. So that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that it's, it's just used as a, as a jumping off point for health passports and uh, kind of social credit systems on smartphones and the general acceptance of, you know, s scanning your phone to prove that you're a good person. And I could see potentially that being rolled out in other scenarios as well. It looks to me like we are headed quite fast into a, a, an unprecedented level of technological control of our everyday lives. I think we're there already, actually, even compared to where we were 10 years ago. And I think that could get deeper and deeper. And a lot of people who are rolling out that system genuinely think it's for the good. You know, they think that it's going to protect the world and it's going to ensure health and equality and other good things. And I've read too many science fiction novels and I know where this kind of thing leads. But there seem to be a lot of people out there now who think the Brave New World is not a warning, but an instruction manual. One thing I that strikes me is that you're on Substack and you seem to be having a good experience with it. And I work for a technology company in San Francisco. I helped start this company. And I wanted, you know, what's your view of Substack? I don't mean this in a self-serving way. I'm not fishing for compliments. I expect that maybe I won't, I might get the opposite even. But to what extent do you think Substack is part of the machine? Well, isn't that an interesting question? Because in one sense, it obviously is. It's a, it's a you know, it's a Silicon Valley technology company. 
which I'm writing for. So I'm clearly impl- complicit in this, <laughs> this situation. Fascist again, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's like I was saying before. If you, I'm a writer, so when I started off writing, or when I started off wanting to be a writer, maybe when I was young, say in the 80s, because I loved books, there was no internet. So I had a vision of if, if I could become a writer, I would be writing books and putting them out there and, and people would buy them and read them. And, and I do do that. But now more and more and more writing is online. And even if you are publishing books, you're also writing online, as I am on Substack. And so, you know, it's impossible for a writer to make a living without having an online presence of some kind. Now, it really is. And so we do that. And so that's what I'm doing on Substack. And I have my own website, too. So in in that sense, it's part of the machine. Yes, obviously, as we all are. The thing I appreciate about Substack, and I'm not just trying to be nice to you, and it's the really important thing about Substack, is the lack of censorship. It is possible to write something on Substack without worrying that, as as you do on Twitter or you used to do on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, that an algorithm is going to take your piece down or that you're going to be uh, removed or you're going to be accused of something or you're going to have a big correction written at the top of your piece that's uh, authorized by the World Health Organization or something like that. It's actually a very old-fashioned – I see Substack as quite an old-fashioned thing, funnily enough, and for me that's a compliment. It's a really nice, easy, clean technology for a writer to use. It's been, for me, you know, it's been very liberating, Substack. It's been a, a great place to be able to develop my ideas at length. And I've been surprised how many people wanted to read them, actually. I, I didn't think I'd, I'd have as many readers as I have. So that's that in itself is interesting because there's an appetite for this. And there's a lot of other Substacks out there doing really good, serious, thoughtful writing. And people want it. You know, they really want to engage with ideas. And I, I'm there's a real um, optimistic vision for the future, actually. People really do want to have these conversations, even if they're difficult ones. Well, to paraphrase a line from Team America, I promise you we will never die. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I'll drink to that. 2007 seemed to be an interesting year for you. I assume you were working on little, uh, sorry, what's it called? Real England. Real England, uh, yeah. I think that came out in 2009, but you must have been working on it. And... That year, you also sort of separated yourself from mainstream media. There's a quote, and I can't remember where I found it, but you said, the media can go hang. I've had <laughs> it. I'm out. <laughs> but also, yeah. in that, also in that year, your father died. And mm. I, I'm forgive me if this is dredging up painful experiences and personal information, but it's out there. And he killed himself. And I think you had a quite interesting and close relationship with your father. But you, one of your responses to that happening was that you said you felt kind of liberated in a way. Do you mind talking about that? Do you mind telling me what you what you meant by that? What was what were you thinking? Yeah, so I had, um, I, I suppose like a lot of men, I had a conflicted relationship with my dad. He was very important to me in many ways, but also we had a difficult conflict of all kinds. And he ended up, yeah, he ended up committing suicide in a way which I didn't expect. So that was unexpected and strange. And I've written, I've written some, a few things about trying to deal with the consequences of that. And one of the strange consequences of it, as you say, is that in some ways, for me, I felt like I could say things I couldn't have said when he was alive, which is rather a sad consequence, actually, in a way. But it was, um, I think it was, it, it did come at the same time as I was finishing my Real England book and I was contemplating Dark Mountain and it sort of threw a lot of things up into the air. I think one of the things it threw up into the air was the, the notion that life's predictable or that it's going to go in a certain direction or that uh, you can, you can make plans. And so, yeah, there was, um, there was, I suppose there was something liberatory about that. Um, and there was also something that probably darkened my vision for a while, I think, which might be one of the reasons I, I turned to the Dark Mountain Project of just looking at some of the darker parts of life that a lot of the time you don't want to look at. And just trying to be honest about the consequences of it. But um, I think the other thing with my dad is that he'd always wanted me to have a very conventional journalistic career. Um, and I'd always felt quite pressured when I was younger to have one. Um, but I wasn't very good at it, <laughs> to be honest. I tried being a proper journalist and I, it just didn't, I, I wasn't very good at it and I didn't like it. And it, Was he a journalist? No, he wasn't a journalist at all. No, he was an engineer, actually. And he was, um, my, my dad was, um, he left school at 16. He didn't go to college. Um, he sort of worked his way up through business and he wanted, he was very ambitious for his children. I was a firstborn son. So he wanted us to go to university and have kind of a proper career of the kind that he hadn't had. And so and you he went, wanted you, me to. You, 
you went to Oxford. He must have been very proud I went of you to going Oxford. to Oxford. Yeah, he was, very, he was very impressed with that. I was surprised by it as well. So I, I tried to sort of forge a career as a, as a sort of Fleet Street journalist for a while, about a year or so after that, because I thought that's what I ought to do. But actually, I was awful at it and I hated it because it turned out that I thought the mainstream news agenda was basically meaningless and there were other things I wanted to do. And, you know, the, a lot of the tension with my dad came because I was a, quite a radical green activist and he thought I should have been a, a lawyer or something, you know, or a doctor. And I, I, I clearly wasn't going in that direction. So, so there was, uh, there was, there was some tension there. And uh, as I, as I say, the sad thing about his death was uh, at the time, to some degree, it was, it was sort of, I, I was liberated from that sense of having to try to be something I wasn't. So I ended up. I don't know what I ended up being instead, but I was I was able to be uh, probably truer to myself. But that's a it's a it's a kind of a sad thought in a way. But it's uh, it's it's how it was. One of the things that you said at the time was that from that moment, kind of, you've been allowed to go to the margins, and it seems that you have lived with varying degrees of comfort or discomfort on those margins and been able to figure it out, like figure out this life of. A writer, a philosopher, whatever, whatever you are. <laughs> and I wonder how you've done that. And to people who look up to you as an example for wanting to lead that kind of life, you know, what can you, what can you say to them? What, you know, how can they do this? I mean, what I would say is I've always, I found out after, after a sort of attempted foray into the mainstream, I found out that I'm just much more comfortable on the margins. You know, I actually don't want the pressure of trying to be famous or successful in conventional terms i don't want to i just don't feel like i really belong there not i'm not resentful about it or anything i just i i'm much happier um on the edges of things i always have been you know when i was younger if uh, i'd always be the guy standing in the kitchen at the party you know i just or (laughs) if we had a lot of visitors to the house when i was young i would try to sneak off and read a book in the bedroom i'm just like that and so i would say to people that they should especially to writers that they should avoid the temptation to be pressured into doing what they think they ought to do don't ever feel that writing is a career because it's not don't allow yourself ever to say anything you don't think is true don't allow yourself to be right to to write about something you don't believe in find a place where you can do what you're passionate about what you think is true and what have integrity you know all the time and Find yourself a place where you can have integrity. Maybe that will be in the mainstream for you, or maybe it won't. Maybe you'll have to find somewhere else to do it. I'm not even sure there is a mainstream anymore, to be honest. I'm not sure it quite works like that in the way that it used to. But, you know, find yourself the place where you can follow the thing that you want to follow and be prepared for some people to call you names. Be prepared to be called all sorts of names if if you rub people up the wrong way. If you're not making the right enemies, you're probably doing something wrong. And just try to have integrity about it. Um, just go where you need to go to to keep your integrity. It's the only thing that matters, really. And are there other writers on Substack that you think are worth highlighting with more attention? I have a friend, Caroline Ross, who writes a new Substack called Uncivil Savant, which is very interesting. It's partly about philosophy and Taoism. It's partly about wild art. It's about all sorts of things. Very, very interesting. Um, I have another good friend, Martin Shaw, who's writing one called The House of Beasts and Vines, Martin's a mythologist and a storyteller, and he's um, like me. He's sort of almost accidentally found himself becoming a Christian over the last couple of years, and so he's 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 writing about that, but he's writing about it from the perspective of old stories. Very interesting. Mm. There's a, a very good substacker who's increasingly well known called N.S. Lyons, who writes something called the Upheaval, which has a lot of um, parallels with what I'm doing, just trying to trace what the heck is going on in terms of the the the, the, the huge technological and cultural change and there's an irish writer called angela nagel who i really like as well who has a newsletter who is very she ranges very widely philosophy politics and she's always she's always an original voice and all the people i read on substack are people who as i say they just have that integrity they're all quite different to each other very often but they're able to just develop a worldview that helps us to work out what's going on it's the biggest thing at the moment this everything is up in the air everything's changing we need people, we need writers, we need thinkers who have the freedom to say what they think is true, to challenge things, to push boundaries, to ask questions, to make proposals that might be right or might be wrong, but they help you think about what's happening. So that's 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 the thing. There's a lot of them around, but those are a few I like. Well, I completely agree with that sentiment. And thanks for those recommendations. We'll put those uh, links in the show notes so everyone can go and find them on Substack Reads, uh, which is read.substack.com, R-E-A-D. 
But Paul Kingsnorth, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, thanks for the work that you're doing on Substack and thanks for the example that you're setting for other writers. Thank you. And, and thanks again for setting this thing up. I appreciate it. And uh, it's been really good to talk. You can find the Abbey of Misrule on Substack at paulkingsnorth.substack.com. See you next week. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com. 